My bigger point is like they've branded themselves as premium. Mm -hmm. They are trying to solve a problem that I think most people are conscious of, but would use a fingernail to solve. Ew. John. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just think (laughs) if you have something stuck in your teeth, that's a. I'm just telling you what the truth is for the majority of people in the world. Uh, I think that's not true. I I think that's a broad generalization that might be true to John. And welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Welcome, everyone. And John. Hey, everybody. Today, we're chatting about the innovators, the products that are like nothing else in the market. A little bit of flowers, a little bit of funk, and a different type of flywheel. But will they be enough to secure a deal? We shall see. But first, let's pay some bills. So first in the tank, we have Bunchbike. And Bunchbike comes to us from Aaron Powell, who is asking for a $250,000 investment for a 10% stake in his company, which shakes out to about a $2.5 million valuation. So his product is Bunchbike, which is a bike for the whole family, up to four kids even. And it's sort of like this bike wagon stroller hybrid, right? Like it's a bike, but in the front of it is like a wagon where all of your kids can sit and be strapped in. So rather than like a bike trailer, you've got all your precious cargo in the front. Because it can hold so much things, it also comes with an electric assist. So you don't have to kind of like work so hard to get this vehicle going. But it's essentially like a family bike, right? It's not a tandem bike. It's not a bike trailer. It's just a bucket bike, if you will. Yeah, it's a bucket bike. It's a wheelbarrow bike, really. It's essentially like a radio flyer. (laughs) Yeah, four kids and picnic supplies in this bucket. Like, we're not talking about a little bucket. It's a big bucket. So thinking about our pitch and sort of like initially our look at this product, what are your thoughts? Well, owning one of these is on my bucket list. (laughs) Nice. I love biking, but I hate the options for kids. One of the things I'd love to do with my daughter is to hop on the bike Mm -hmm. and go for a bike ride to get a bagel. What a Mm -hmm. great little father-daughter activity, right? Problem is the options are just really crummy for it, right? Like the bike trailer seems great because she's got a great view out the sides and it's like pretty safe. It's low to the ground. You can put a flag on it, like all these things. Problem is, like, her feet are always dangling out now. Like, she throws stuff out of it all the time. And it's hard to talk to her. Oh, I've got to, like, yeah. really yell. Mm-hmm. And she likes to talk a lot. So that's no good. And it's true. They made this joke on the pitch. But something about having my daughter, you know, like, a foot away from my backside is not really something that sounds like a great situation for her. So there's just not good options. And I think this bucket bike could be absolutely incredible. I've seen them before and I aspire to own one. So from the start, like I'm just personally very interested in this product. Yeah, product itself looks really cool. I love that it's also electric as well. So again, if you have, you know, four kids, but if you're tired, you know, after you take your kids to like the park, you can just load them all in. They still get to see stuff. I think for me, where I had the biggest questions is when we actually get into the price point and understanding margins and how much it actually costs to like ship the bike and the logistics that come with it. Yeah. Everyone's going to have a negative reaction because they're going to say this thing costs $5,000 and 500 bucks to ship it. Would you pay that, John? Definitely. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, it's not like I would just like buy a bunch of them. I wouldn't like buy one for everyone in the family. It would be a splurge (laughs) purchase. But for a family that wants to build their family identity around the idea of biking, 
Like, it's yeah. not actually too much to spend. Interesting. Because I, I was curious to see, like, what were the solutions in the market? And I saw there's, like, tagalongs, which, you know, kind of retail usually between 200 to $500. And I was like, there's no way families would be willing to, like, make that big of a purchase knowing that there's alternative options on the market for cheaper. Well, yeah, but you pay for what you get, yeah. right? Like what we're actually talking about here is an electric assisted, mm -hmm. like very high quality bucket bike. And if you want to take your kids to school every single day on a bike, let's just say that's your goal. This is targeted at urban affluent families. Mm -hmm. Most of suburbia probably is not super targeted there. And these are people who don't want to own a car and instead want to live a bike lifestyle. And so in that case, like, I don't know how much you pay for a car. Mm -hmm. So to me, I feel like people who really want to invest in this are going to be looking mm -hmm. for quality and they're going to be looking for something that's going to last. And I don't think willingness to pay is going to be the blocker mm -hmm. to its success. But here's why I don't think this product makes sense to me. You mentioned that it's targeted towards like potentially more of an urban demographic, right? And we found out from the origin story that like this founder was inspired by his trip to Sweden. And the thing is, is like, I can't see this working at scale in any major U.S. city I have been to, including Boston, because we are just not at a point where any of our city streets are biking friendly. And this thing is huge, yeah. right? It's big. It's big. And then from personal experience, like there's some areas in Boston that are like biking friendly, but the majority of them are really dangerous and there are constantly accidents. So then you add the factor of like distracted driving, right? Because you're you're talking to your kids, your kids are out front and you're navigating the busy Boston streets. Like forget about it. This is just not going to scale. No one's going to actually, they might buy it because there's the idea of like being eco-friendly and not driving driving your car. But then when it comes to the practical use case of like when you're getting this huge boat of a vehicle, this big bike out to potentially expose your four kids to the Boston <laughs> streets, no way. I just, I don't see it at all. You make a really good point, Jory, about like bike infrastructure needs to improve massively in the United States to make way for this. And this is actually why I said it's a more targeted affluent, like urban because I actually think cities have made more strides than a lot of suburbs have in terms of bike accessibility. And I think the segment of the market who cares deeply about this, they are advocating for the right bike infrastructure, but it won't stop them from buying a bike and living their lifestyle that way because it's a deeply held belief of how they want to live their life. I think it will definitely put a cap on how big the market can be. But in the meanwhile, they're selling them for a lot of money and they could probably even raise the price and make more margin and that could be fine for them. Do you think this is a business that would do well in a non-direct-to-consumer model? Like partnering with local parks or having like rental, similar to like electric bikes that you can rent. Back when I lived in SF, they were everywhere, <laughs> like the scooter craze. Like I could actually see this being more of a play for organizations and popular spots or tourist areas for like your kids when you're traveling in the U.S., more so than D2C. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea because people, I think, when they are traveling, often think it would be fun to bike around a little bit. Right. Like you get to see better views, take in more of the place that I'm going. But yeah, it is hard to do that if you have kids and it's hard yeah. to do it safely. Um, so you could definitely see that as an option. They didn't get into a ton of details, I don't think, about how they're actually selling. And that was mm -hmm. one of my big questions is like, are they trying to bring this to retail stores and have those retail stores sell them? Are they trying to create their own retail stores? Are they selling online? Like it wasn't actually clear to me. And I think they would have to be really intentional about making the right choice there because 
Retail would get them a lot of distribution and would get them their target consumer. I think most people, when they're thinking about buying a bike, want to go to a store and see it Mm -hmm. and feel it and try it. But that would take even more off the margin. So you'd have to raise the price more, reduce the cost more. Yeah. You both raised really good points, right? We've got some issues with price point kind of being high. Mm -hmm. We've got some issues with this founder not being the inventor necessarily. But we did manage to snag the attention of a shark. So despite kind of all the potential fallbacks, despite not really knowing how they're selling these bunch bikes... Barbara actually was very interested and offered $100,000 for 15% with a $150,000 investment as a loan. And this was like an interesting segment just because I have never seen a entrepreneur come to the show so ready to talk about numbers, right? Like they went back and forth for at least five minutes just like rattling off numbers. And it was just one of those like really cool moments where you saw that like he knew exactly what was too much. He knew exactly what he was asking for and his upper limit. And I just thought it was really interesting to see that play out. No, that was a great example of like counter negotiations and how to come in with, you know, confidence and knowing your value and kind of what your business is worth. And I love that he was able to think on his feet Mm -hmm. of like, hey, I have, you know, a history of asking for loans and like having like that credit line. And that's really what I need at the end of the day. So I loved how he was just able to be like, okay, if he can't give me what I want capital wise, how about this as an offering instead of looking at equity, which is rare that we, you know, to your point, Jory, see that. Definitely. But ultimately, the deal was made with Barbara. So Bunch Bike, despite some of at least my concerns, did walk away with a Shark Tank deal. And after the tank, sales actually exploded on this product. Yeah, Selling $1.8 million. Everybody wants a Bunch Bike, I'm telling you. (laughs) (laughs) So immediately after this episode, they actually received a huge purchase order from Luca and Livy Beverages for $2 million. And despite not offering this company a deal when they were on the show, Robert actually called up Barbara to let him in on the deal because he was a big fan of bunch bikes. And it's the first time in Shark Tank history that a deal was made with a shark who initially didn't offer a deal on the panel, but post-show was like, you know what? I want to invest in this. This is a cool product. Let me in. So Robert, yeah, came on board. So. That's cool. Robert has really been a surprise player, especially in some of these other segments too that we're diving in today. So I'm glad that you brought that up, Jory. Yeah. Awesome. So next in the tank, we have Funk Off. And despite its kind of charming name, it actually might not be exactly what you're thinking it is in terms of product. Very interesting name here. Very charming. No charm to this name. We'll get into branding in a minute. (laughs) Uh, Don't say it sarcastically. (laughs) It's a good name. Okay. Our branding expert approves. So Funk Off comes to us from founders Joel and Sonia, and they're asking for a $250,000 investment for a 5% equity stake in their company, which actually shakes out to $5 million in valuation. And their product Funk Off is a compact reusable tooth refresher, which is like a two-in-one toothbrush that also comes with a store of natural tooth gel and a little mirror at the bottom. So whenever you're out to eat or whenever you're out at a wine tasting and you find you got some gunk in your teeth, you can quickly use your funk off to uh, have a clean and bright smile. You said the word funk off and I shivered. (laughs) Visceral reactions. But that's what makes it a good brand name, right? It made you feel something. Okay. I'm going to go into why I think this is a great name. The branding, visual logo, 
not good whatsoever. Mark was absolutely right when he was like, you're missing the basket by five feet for that. But the actual name itself, there's really four components that go into what makes a really good brand name. So first, is it something that's really distinct and unique and sets it kind of apart from the market? Is it easy for memorability? Like, Funk off is a play on words, obviously, and it's very common <laughs> phrase, which I'm not going to say on air, but you know, it's easy to remember the name and then the authenticity and the connection piece, which is like the emotional piece, John, when you're like, ugh, I don't want to imagine the funk or the gunk on my teeth. And then how enduring is it? So like this brand name can be extended to, you know, future extension lines. I don't necessarily agree with going down the toothpaste route, but it is a name that can be carried across multiple products for scalability. I love the name, but go on and disagree, John. No, that's an incredible list. My problem is I don't think, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, any press is good press. And like, I'm not sure that's true for like brand names in the sense of like any emotional reaction is a good emotional reaction. Like mm. I have a bad reaction to it. I just <laughs> am like, oh, I'm so disgusted by it. And like, to me, it kind of just sounds like a dance contest. <laughs> like, let's have a funk off. <laughs> like, let's like break Soul it down, you style, know? Like <laughs> get the boom box. <laughs> I mean, maybe, they, maybe that could be an advertising campaign for them is where like two people like have a dance off to see who can get the funk off their teeth faster. Yes. I think the part of the problem for me is like, I've never called the stuff on my teeth funk. Mm. I would never mm. think that's a funk is a smell to me. Mm. And more gunk. Like, I feel like, you know, you're like, ooh, there's a funk. Yeah, like it you're smells like, funky. You know. Okay, then you change the F to a G. Gunk off. Gunk off. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That would be better than funk off. But I like how you brought up the point of like the dancing and the tonality, because I think that's where they miss the mark with the marketing, right? Packaging is great in terms of it's the size of like my lipstick. I can put it in my purse. It's really easy to use. But I think the main issue here is that they were really trying to position this product as this luxury kind of brand. Like you could even see in their display in the background, it's like a stock image of a woman with like a designer purse putting it away. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it, especially if you're going to have a brand that has as silly as a name as Funk Off. You're not going to be a Tom Ford mm -hmm. or a Marc Jacobs or a YSL in this space, right? Like you really need to lean into that tonality. So even doing like videos or a slogan of like, get the funk out of here or like fun, playful, like leaning into that, I think could actually work. This is part of the problem. What's part of the problem? This is part of the problem. They don't have product market fit. Mm. With the way that yeah. they've chosen their branding. They are a premium product. They're high priced, I think, for what it is. Most people are not actually going to purchase this item. You think so? Most people are not going to purchase this product. I would. This is a splurge. Let's dive into that, Ariel. Why would you buy this product? As someone who has worn Invisalign for the last two years, nothing has been more embarrassing than when I go out with friends and I have to whip out my toothbrush and my floss because you have to like brush your teeth between meals when you have braces. I mean, I wish they went more into like, we know this isn't toothpaste. So like, I'd love to know what it is that I'm putting on my teeth. I wish they actually dove into the ingredients and like- Tooth gel. Mystery goop. <laughs> I don't want mystery goop. A mystery funk off on your teeth. Jail. Yeah. But if they're like, it's a toothpaste or it's like formulated based off of that, like I could see myself, you know, using it to like refresh really quickly. Or if I have coffee in the morning and I'm about to go into a meeting and then I'm even thinking back to another segment way long ago that we looked at where the guy was like, if I go outside for a smoke break, I want to have clean clothes. I see it having use cases if this was sold in like a gas station or to go places or at a restaurant counter, like Mark said, but not for 
retail, like Sephora distribution. Completely different. No, I totally disagree. Nobody's buying this in a gas station. (sighs) It's those use cases that really confuse me, right? The origins came from one of the founders going to a bunch of wine tastings and then immediately Mm -hmm. brushing their teeth. Now, It doesn't take a lot of Googling prowess to know that like immediately brushing your teeth after you drink something as acidic as wine Mm -hmm. or even coffee is super bad in the long term for your enamel, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like definitely not approved by dentists. And teeth is something that like people are really concerned with the long-term health of, right? Because dental health is an investment. And so I really didn't understand like the value they were trying to prove that this product was doing because like, I get it. Wine can stain your teeth. You should brush your teeth before you drink wine. So all of those dyes don't get into plaque. We talk about products being a vitamin or a painkiller, this product is in the long run a pain causer. It's going to ruin your teeth. Whoa, you just blew my mind. Directly apply it though. The problem is, is like their entire use case, it's like a cosmetic painkiller, but in the long run, it's going to really hurt its (sighs) users. Jory, but if you wait 10 to 15 minutes after you have acidic foods, it's okay to brush your teeth afterwards. No, you should Isn't wait. It? You should wait over an hour. My dentist said no. after 15 minutes, I could put my Invisalign back it's in. It's really bad. Ah, okay, maybe that's something that could be solved on like the packaging itself of like direction. True. But I get your point. Like if you're at a restaurant and that's like the only place you're going to, you're not gonna, you know, utilize it. But if you're doing a wine tasting tour and that it's that one edge case or like you're gonna be outgoing place to place or mm-hmm. trying different foods, then it may make a little bit more sense. But I think you're entirely right. Like use case wise, it's not as widely usable as we think. Yeah, they just don't have product market. They don't know who their target persona is. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually like a big yes. part of right. it. Yes. Like you saying like you could see a use case for this in gas stations. <laughs> Like, to me, I would never in a million years think it that it would example. go in a gas station. Like, tied to go. How you have tied to go at a gas station. It's not like to say airports. that that's a bad example. I'm not actually picking on gas stations, even though I think you are wild to think that <laughs> anybody's going to buy this in a gas station. <laughs> but my bigger point is, like, they've branded themselves as premium. Mm-hmm. They are trying to solve a problem that I think most people are conscious of, but would use a fingernail to solve. Like, ew. John. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just think <laughs> that if you have something disgusting. stuck in your teeth, that's a you- <laughs> I'm just telling you what the truth is for the majority of people in the world. Uh, I think that's not true. I I think that's a broad generalization that might be true to John. (laughs) Maybe that's just true to me. If you have something stuck in your teeth, what do you do? Brush it. Well, what if you don't have a toothbrush? Use floss. To get the stuff out of your teeth. What do you need floss? You should always carry floss on you. (laughs) You always carry floss? I don't carry a toothbrush. I don't carry floss. I do. Always in my purse. Yes. You always have your emergency kit in your purse. Maybe this is just a difference. Yeah. Maybe this is a difference. Maybe every woman has this in their person. I didn't know that. Exactly. <laughs> but John, you bring up a good point of missing the persona. They're really going for like those legacy brands that have focused on the luxury status. But when you really look at like, if you are positioning this as like a beauty product or like enhancement for the day-to-day, there's a lot of new brands that have come onto the market, like Too Faced and Fenty that are more focused mm-hmm. on selling like that experience and like talking about a product that you love kind of reminds me a little bit of those gummy bears. Have you guys seen them on Instagram? The blue bear, sugar bear hair? The vitamin? Yes, it's a vitamin. But you know what I'm talking about. I've seen those. Got a lot of opinions. Yes, and 
it may not work. Yeah. But I actually think this could do really well in like an influencer content space, similar to like a sugar bear mm. hair model where you have influencers taking pictures with like their teeth and stuff. Like this isn't video content. This is more like image selling, like that kind of lifestyle. And that's how you kind of tie into the luxury while still meeting like the everyday beauty aficionado. Yeah, I could see it doing very well there. You both bring up really good points though. How would you market this? I could actually see this working well with influencer marketing for sure. I think there's a whole segment of people who do really care deeply about beauty and are willing to carry products around and that could definitely work. I will say, I think the team is actually a really good team to the extent that it's worth betting on teams. This one would be one to bet on. You basically have like a former CPG brand manager and an inventor who's secured all sorts of patents for the product and designed a whole bunch of things. I think with the right guidance and advisory and the right team, that's a team worth betting on to me. So even though I'm really struggling to understand who this is for, Mm -hmm. how you would get distribution on it and how you'd make a lot of money. I think they've got a team that probably could figure it out. It's funny for that exact reason why I wouldn't invest because I would expect someone with a CPG background to do their research into their persona and their audience and build something for them. Like you can boast all the years of experience you want, but at the end of the day, like if your work doesn't actually achieve what it needs to, then you definitely need more mentorship or have the right people and the right team in place. But that's my hot take. I like it. Um, <laughs> and that's something that the sharks like started to key into mm-hmm. though, right? Because like the sharks couldn't even agree on how they would themselves market this. Right. Like Robert was like, you know, you have to go big box stores. But then Mark was like, no, this is a restaurant play. And I think that really speaks to like not even the sharks being able to quite nail down who this was for, what marketing kind of brand voice they should take to how to kind of get this to mass consumers, which is why a lot of the sharks went out, Mm -hmm. right? Like they didn't have enough proof of concept, but then also kind of specific targeting strategies to really make it a company they felt worthy of investment. Yeah. I I would just expect a lot more from someone who had just that wealth of experience, like down to the packaging, the logo, the audience, like it was all off with the exception of the name. I will stand by the name. Most of the sharks were actually out kind of from the beginning. We actually saw a comeback because it's not often that Robert will go Mm -hmm. out on a deal, but then come back in. So just as we thought that these founders were going to walk away with no deal, Robert stopped them and was like, you know what? Sometimes my wife reminds (laughs) me that little Jiminy Cricket voice in my head of products I should have invested in. And I feel like this is one of them. So ultimately, Ultimately, Robert did offer these two founders $250,000 for 12%, and they ended up sealing the deal with Robert. So it was an amazing comeback play, kind of a final closeout in the last stretch. But the funk off folks did end up with a Shark Tank deal. Yeah, I was super surprised that he was just like, you know what? I think my wife is going to give me crap about this. So I'm investing. <laughs> I, was like, I need what? to save my marriage right now. But it's so weird. Yeah, I was surprised too because they're <laughs> too early on sales-wise. Like, I think they walked away with a really good deal for where they were at. They walked away with an incredible deal. Yeah. This is the other thing that's underlying this business. And maybe this is actually the right point about the team, Ariel, is if you just look at the reality of where they are. They come in asking for a $5 million valuation based on $80,000 in sales. Yeah. <laughs> The reality is that they've actually spent $600,000 just to earn that Mm -hmm. $80,000 in sales. So they should have a negative valuation (laughs) at this point. Like if you're putting money in, you're going to lose that money. Absolutely and definitely. And it may be on the path to someday 
get it back, but it's going to take a lot of cash at the rate that they're burning. Which is why I don't think it's still a product. Is it not a product? Unless if they redid everything. I, mm. I don't think it is. Well, while the pitch was just from a month ago, oh. uh, the company is definitely still around. Uh, <laughs> it was from this season, but we will certainly be able to keep an eye on their business in the future. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, surprise. <laughs> Definitely still a company. So last in the tank, we have Eat Your Flowers. And this comes from Loria Stern. And this founder is asking for $250,000 for a 12% stake in her business, which shakes out to a $2.083 million valuation. Very specific. Love that for her. And her product is Eat Your Flowers, which is essentially this edible flower dessert line where you can not only smell the roses, but eat them too. So it is a series of cakes, cookies, pies, and chocolate bars that are dyed with natural plant pigments and are sold with edible flowers kind of encased within the baked good. So over the top in the cookie, they also come with a line of edible fresh flowers that you can use for decorating and flower fetti that you can put on tops of dips and different things too, if you so choose. So thinking about our product, our pitch, what are our initial thoughts of Eat Your Flowers? Well, so do you remember COVID? No, what was that? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. COVID back in the day. Well, we all went on a baking journey of some kind during COVID, didn't we? I bet most of us tried banana bread. Some of us got a sourdough starter going. Sourdough. Bless everyone who made it work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could not. And the elite in us made it to focaccia. Mm -hmm. And at focaccia, one of the things that happened was that people began to put vegetables in decorative ways on their focaccias and take pictures of them and put them on the internet. There was a whole Instagram movement around posting like beautiful focaccias. And I always, always aspired to make one of those focaccias and I never did it. And this company taps exactly into you can that. still do it's it. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> uh, it taps exactly into what I love about that focaccia movement. It's so beautiful and pretty. And I love seeing the creativity that's applied. So I like loved it. It's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's a premium product at an amazing price point. Mm -hmm. Because of the nature of the product, it's going to go viral. It's got incredible profitability because they can charge so much and it costs nothing. And it's cookies. And so like right. all those things together mean I'm in, I'm investing. And let's do it. it's vegan and it's gluten-free. And let's face it, Rarely are things gluten-free, vegan, and tasty. So that's a huge selling and point. And it's as well. delicious, <laughs> according to the sharks as they tried it. Like, literally nailed it. And she is impressive, and she deserves to have an incredible career. I also love how smart she was, too. Literally utilizing materials that she already has and just selling the leftovers. It's like confetti. Like, that's such a smart way to go about a product extension without actually having to take on more capital to produce something or package something when you already have it there. Well, I'd imagine one of the downsides of a business like this could be that there could be a lot of waste because I'm sure she buys these in bulk and I'm sure there's lots that she purchased that don't come out looking particularly pretty and you'd never put them on a cookie. Right. And so to your point, Ariel, it like uses every aspect of inventory that she has to make money on, which is just super smart. Yeah. When she said her margins, I literally gasped. Holy sh out loud. <laughs> but like an 86% margin on a premium food product. 
insane. Yeah, and let's talk about those margins, right? Because it's like she makes a whole box of these for $7.50 and flips them for 50 bucks, right? Like, that's incredible. <laughs> that's insane. I mean, she said basically that she's going to do a million dollars in sales and she's going to make like half a million in net margin. So mm-hmm. yeah, super impressive margins. And it kind of actually paved way to her valuation and what the right valuation for her was. I think the Sharks tried to you know, press her a little bit. Kevin was like, oh, you're not worth that. You know, he offered 25% for $250,000, but she's worth a million and a half at least, Mm -hmm. probably a million and a half to 2 million based on her margins and her growth. And the fact that she's doing this all by herself as a one woman team, what do you guys think about her having a mentor? Is there really that much of a value add right now versus her continuing to kind of run the business on her own, BAU, or hiring a headcount potentially? Well, I think there's like two things. You know, number one is just because she's wildly successful doesn't mean she knows where to go from here. And even if she does know where to go from here, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And and so I think there's just a lot of good reasons to get involved with business partners who can help guide you, who have experience in things that you don't have experience in. Like, I think it's going to make an easier path and it's going to be a more likely chance of success there. But the interesting thing I think about mentorship is it's not just about them helping you. It's also about them advocating for you. I think that's one of the things about mentorship that I always think about is, you know, it's 50% about them helping you and 50% about them advocating for you out in the world. And I think that's what makes some of the best mentorships. And that's another thing that I'm sure she could use help with, right, is getting intros to people who can help her scale her business and getting intros to people who will believe in her mission and want to work for her to build her team, all that stuff. So, Mm. you know, I think it's a completely valid reason for seeking investors and in particular for seeking investors who can, you know, act in a mentorship capacity. Yeah, I think that with this founder, she's already been incredibly successful, right? Like she has $2.2 million in lifetime sales. That is like nothing to knock at. But I think what she keeps emphasizing throughout her presentation is she works so hard. She works so much. Mm -hmm. She works all the time to be able to do that. And while she could definitely stay in her niche and kind of keep doing what she's doing, if she has any hope to kind of scale this. I think if she already knew how to do that effectively at this point with this success, she would have started to. And it sounds like she has like a lot of ideas and where mentorship made a lot of sense to me was just the implementation, right? Like to definitely start to test out a bunch of things, but then to be able to scale effectively without too many missteps, like I don't know, like even as she was talking about how she was using the money, it seemed like honestly it was to hire someone, right? Like she needed a salary. So I wasn't too concerned that it was a mentorship thing because it was like to take this business to the next level, it didn't seem like they needed more capital. They needed strategy on how to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I think it made sense. That's a great point. What was also interesting though is with the mentorship ask is it became really clear who she was trying to get as a mentor, right? Like when she started to mention mentorship, she immediately went to Barbara. This founder came onto the show knowing who she wanted to partner with. And while Mm -hmm. Kevin definitely came into the scene and wanted to offer her like ways to stay in that premium market, she wanted to work with Barbara, right? And that's Mm -hmm. who she wanted to help her scale her business. Kevin was just being greedy, honestly. Like he saw the opportunity, he saw the dollar signs, the margins, like, okay, 25%. At least Barbara was much more reasonable. 
But what I liked about this negotiation piece, that's like another great, like kind of case study is, you know, instead of the founder kind of backing down or being like, oh, 25%, Kevin, that's so much. Instead, she looked at Kevin and is like, what is your vision that you have for my company? And that push and like advocating for herself, I think was just really well done. That was an incredible moment. Right. Like to be able to see a founder so confidently be like, okay, if you want more equity, then what else are you going to give me? Yeah. It's really Mm -hmm. just badass to see. Yeah. She was great. She was really good. I was proud of her. Definitely. And I think that that was also like a major moment because certain sharks didn't see why she wanted to go into a lower price retail, like into that Starbucks or Whole Food ranges. But Mm -hmm. Barbara was like, you know what? I'm not going to question that because I can see that you have the drive to make it happen. So like if we partner together, let's test out some things like let's make it happen. And I think it was also that belief in the founder that solidified Barbara winning this deal for 250000 for 15%, right? Because mm-hmm. it was clearly the shark that this founder wanted to work with, but Barbara was bought in by the end. Like she's like, I believe we can do this, which I think is always like a inspiring and helpful, hopeful moment. <laughs> it's rare on Shark Tank we actually see a discussion on what people want to use the money for. Mm-hmm. And I feel like most of the time where you're fundraising, that's one of the most important things that you talk about is like, how are you going to spend my money? And I think one of the things that investors look for is they try and validate whether they think that is going to be a good use of their money and is going to help the value of that company grow. And maybe they do have those discussions and they don't show them on air very often. You know, it does come up sometimes, Mm -hmm. but this was probably one of the best examples of a real deep conversation about like, what are you looking for from me as an investor? And I feel like it's such a powerful Mm -hmm. concept and is something that hopefully everyone who's an entrepreneur and is out there trying to raise money looks to and says, yeah, I should advocate for myself like that. And I should push for the level of clarity that I brought around uh, what I need. So spoiler alert. This was also a company that aired this season. So Eat Your Flowers was a pitch back on March 3rd. So again, this is a company that walked away with a Shark Tank deal, but is definitely still a company. We will also make sure to keep an eye on how Eat Your Flowers continues to grow and expand with Barbara on their side. But thinking about our three pitches of today's episode, who gets the golden bite Who won the episode? Okay, if you say funk off, you're wrong, but go on. I'm going to eat your flowers. (laughs) I know. I wasn't going to say funk off. Thanks, Jory. You got to say funk off. You're a funk off lover. Just the name. Just the name. (laughs) Honestly, I will agree. Like, eat your flowers because all the other food options, like you have like Honey Mama's, which is like cacao bars with like rose petals in it. I've never seen it ever look as beautiful and well presented as eat your flowers has. Like- there's They're something beautiful. very special there. So 100% aligned, Eat Your Flowers should win. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, I agree. Eat Your Flowers. It's fun and fancy and uh, brings a little joy to your day. So how could you not like it? Today's episode was written and produced by the incomparable Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero. If you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell everybody. Because I mean, I like hanging out with you. Do you like hanging out with me? What do you say, Barb? I'm out. Okay, rude. (laughs) You can follow and subscribe to the show wherever fine podcasts are found. That's everywhere, in case you're wondering. Every podcast player, we're there. That's it from me, for real this time. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.